Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're in chapter uh, two of uh, Mark, right on track. If you uh, missed it, you can podcast it. And uh, last time, we got underway by thinking about what Jesus was uh, announcing, what he was declaring about his message, and about who he was in person. He wasn't just bringing a message about the good news, but he was, in fact, the good news. And we asked the question, am I good news? If I'm going to be part of a Jesus movement uh, that is defined by being good news, then I need to face that question back in the mirror, as it were, and ask, am I good news? And we turned that into a question, taking that uh, New Living Translation version from what Paul wrote to the Corinthians about us being a life-giving aroma. Remember that? Are you a life-giving aroma? Aroma. And so I asked you last week, where this week, meaning last week, where this week could you be more life-giving? And you discussed with one another what you were going to do. Remember that? So what's going to happen now? You're going to tell each other how you got on. Go. <clears throat> Great. It's, it's only as good as this moment. Last week, the message was only as good as it gets worked out into our lives. There's bird poo all over this lectern now. I'm a bit distracted, uh, to be honest. Pretty disgusting. No, you'll need something more than a tissue, more like a wet wipe, do you know? Those days of having a wet wipe in my back pocket I thought were long gone, but right now it would have been brilliantly helpful. Um, in case there's some confusion, the Twitter hashtag through this series is Jesus No Filter. If you just hashtag No Filter, then that connects with millions of other things. <laughs> yes. So, Jesus No Filter. Bible's open. Bring your own. That would be good. Get your phones out, whatever you use to read the scriptures on. If you haven't got a Bible, take one home with you. And verse 3 of chapter 2 begins with a very uh, familiar story. Verse 3. It's all right, it's been after this one time. It is disgusting. You're quite right. Thank you. Thank, thank you for stating the obvious. It's, it's disgusting. Good. No, I'm good. That's good. That's good enough for now. Excuse us. For the, for the purpose of those listening on podcast, I'm cleaning the lectern from bird's poo. This is a standard activity inside our church. Please join us next Sunday at 1045. Bring an umbrella. Okay, here we go. Verse 2. Verse 3, rather, of chapter 2. Since then they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus uh, by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. They bring their mate to be healed by Jesus and they can't get in so they climb up on the outside of the flat roof it was only made of straw and stuff would have been renewed every year so they literally pulled it all apart would have made a heck of a mess and dropped the man into the middle of the crowd I think it's the most popular Sunday school story don't you if you've been in Sunday school one of your earliest memories will be filling in a coloring if you had coloring in your day filling in the coloring of that particular story and there were loads of truths messages attached to that story that we were supposed to learn give me some of them 
The boy who cried wolf. Not sure how that fits, but I'll think about that. Kirsty, keep going. Come on. Friendship, okay. The, it's all about friendship. They, they brought their friend to Jesus. They took the sacrifice of bringing him there. Determination, perseverance, going the extra mile, not caring about what others think of you, just getting on with it, making a mess of someone's roof, if you like. Faith, we talk about faith, and we also talk about healing, don't we? Sometimes we go, okay, Jesus healed. What part of that is our ministry and all the rest of it? And all of those things are really important truths about this particular set of verses, but it's not what they're saying fundamentally, primarily, or why those verses are there. The truth of why these verses are there in this particular part of the story, presented to us in the way that they are presented to us, is to say a single powerful is to proclaim a single powerful message that so often is missed. The story is about God's power and willingness to forgive, and that's why it's good news. It's good news because it's the discovery that forgiveness unlocks good news in our lives. That's why at the end of chapter 1, Jesus, uh, sorry, Mark launches straight into this story about Jesus. They bring their mate in and they want him healed. They've heard that Jesus is a healer and they cannot imagine anything more amazing, more life transforming for this man than for him to be healed of his lameness. Nothing more joy-filling to see him take up his mat and walk back out through the crowd to get on with his life. He'd never walked, do we know? Was he injured in an accident? Was it a dreadful disease? We don't know the story. What we do know in that day, in that culture, his condition, as it would in our day, in our culture, totally undermined his life and robbed him of so many things. If only he could walk again and breathless, These friends carry their man, their friend, and lower him down in front of Jesus. And incredulously, Jesus completely ignores what they are obviously asking for. And he starts talking about their sins. Sins? No one is thinking about sins. His sins, their sins. Forget about my sins, mate. We want this guy to walk again. What's Jesus saying? Look at this man. All you see is that his greatest need is to walk. All you are imagining is how great a transformation it will be in his life if he was able to be released from the paralysis of his legs. But I want to tell you, says Jesus, there is a greater need. A need that if it were met would be even more transforming than the obvious life-transforming event being able to walk again would create. Forgiveness and reconciliation with God is the only way out of the human predicament. We are all paralyzed, not in our legs, but paralyzed by sin and lame as a result in our lives. The rift between us and God has paralyzed us from living the way we could have and should have. Forgiveness is the road to true life, to real transformation, and in that way, it is the path of good news.
So Jesus says to the bloke, your sins are forgiven. That's what you really need. And everyone in the whole crowd is thinking, but what about his legs? And before anything can happen, before Jesus can get another word out, there's suddenly an atmosphere. Do you know when an atmosphere just emerges and no one said anything? You know, body language and our perception is so much deeper than simply the words we say. And by the Spirit, Jesus is just sensing, and I I guess just everybody can sense there's something going on here. The religious teachers are getting stressed out. How can he say your sins are forgiven? That's blasphemy. Jesus' reply is brilliant. Verse 9. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man as he looks at the religious leaders? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, what? To heal legs? No. Authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what this story is about. That's why it's there. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Big cheer from the crowd. In other words, I will do what you are asking, something visible that you can see, to show you and to prove to you that I am also doing something even greater that is invisible, and therefore you might not see it. You might miss it. So the man leaves walking, a transformation indeed, no longer paralyzed in his legs, but deeper, richer, fuller, he leaves forgiven, a transformation greater than any paralysis of his limbs. The discovery of forgiveness unlocks the good news in our lives. And it gives us freedom to live and freedom to dance to the tune that forgiveness brings. And if we were only preaching on those few verses, not the whole chapter, that would be the end. You need to exercise forgiveness now towards me. I want you to to, um, just tune in, even if you've tuned out already. And listen carefully to this next bit, because it unlocks the whole of the chapter. This is the key. The rest of the chapter is about what we believe about God's forgiveness and how religious people have got it totally wrong. The next three stories and the first story of the next chapter where we'll finish this morning is Jesus in direct conflict with religious people and the primary theme that runs through it all is this theme of forgiveness. If you get this wrong, says Jesus, you will not only be opposed to me, but you might end up on the very wrong side. If understanding God's forgiveness is the way of good news in our lives, then what we believe about it is super important, and these verses are here to help us. And so we're going to look at it from the perspective of the religious people Because that's how the chapter presents it. They're in conflict with Jesus about who he ends up eating with, then about what his disciples are doing about fasting, then about what they do about the Sabbath, and then finally they're in conflict again with Jesus because he heals someone on the Sabbath at the beginning of chapter 3. In other words, the first thing to note is this. It's the religious people that are most in conflict with Jesus. One of the greatest insults you can receive as a Christian is to be called religious. Because we are not religious. The Gospels time and time again set whatever this Jesus movement is, call it what you like, whatever this life-changing salvation, whatever this forgiveness of God that will change the world is, whatever we call it, Gospel good news, it's not religious. The religious people are always in conflict with him. 
Let's see how this get plays out. One of the biggest insults then is being called religious. Religious people were obsessed, and these religious people in Jesus' day were obsessed with what they did. They had rules and regulations, and then they had rules and regulations as to how they should go about their rules and regulations. And presumably, some of them had rules and regulations about the rules and regulations that were about their rules and regulations. All the best, Mark. We're with you. You've been left holding the baby. God bless you. This is what they believed. If you want God's favor, if you want God's blessing, if you want some assurance in your life, you've got to keep the rules. And so like all religious people, they live thinking it's about what they do. Let's make sure we don't miss it before we look at this specific verse. Go back to the story a moment about the paralyzed man and the roof and lower down and Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. What did the paralyzed man do to get his sins forgiven? Nothing. Absolutely. He did absolutely, you got it? Nothing. He did absolutely nothing to get his sins forgiven. You with me? So don't lose sight of that. It's the dominant story that affects the whole of the rest of the chapter. Nothing. Verse 14. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Tax collectors, they were thieves and swindlers and all that. I could make a cheap joke and say they still are, but that wouldn't be very fair. Levi is a tax collector, and so he is sitting in his tax collecting booth. In other words, he is sitting in his place of sin, actively engaging in his sinfulness, actively cheating and lying. And Jesus comes along, and what does Levi I do in order to get an invite from Jesus to follow him? What does Levi need to do in order for Jesus to be attracted by his attention? What does he do? Nothing. He's just sitting there in all the gloriousness of his sin and his deception and his rebellion against others and against God. The offer of forgiveness is absolutely free. And when religious people miss this, it skews absolutely everything and messes the whole thing up. The religious people had a message that said, clean yourself up and you can come to God. Jesus had a message that said, come to God and he'll clean you up. Isn't that brilliant? It's not just a play on words, it's a life-changing reality. The religious people said, come to God, sorry, get yourself clean and then you can come to God. Jesus says, come to God and he will clean you up. Jesus is not bringing a little twist on religion. He's introducing a revolutionary, brand new way. And religious people have been in conflict with this way ever since as we might say, have religions the world over. Religion, do this, 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 and you will get yourself in some measure acceptable to God. Jesus says, accept you. I'll clean you up because you can't possibly do that by yourself. Having to do stuff to be assured of God's favor is very, very unsettling. Because if I have to do enough to assure myself of God's favor, I always live with this nagging doubt that I haven't quite done enough. You know that imposter syndrome that we get in the workplace, all of us? You think you're the only one, but everyone gets it. I'm going to be found out one day. Well, translate into this context, and we're we're trying to live a certain way because living that certain way will make me acceptable to God. I always live with this nagging doubt that I could do it a bit better, or I could do a bit more, or I could somehow I might have made a mistake and not even realized. And if I haven't, if I've made a mistake and not even realized, then God hasn't accepted me, even though I think He's accepting me. I'm doing all these rules, and oh, it just goes on and on. And that's why religious people are super anxious because they never rest in the confidence that Jesus is cleaning them up. They're still trying to do it by themselves. They're always having to stay the right side of the rules, and it's exhausting. Have I got it right? Have I done enough? What if I've made a mistake? 
So no wonder they're absolutely freaking out in this next story because Jesus is sitting there with all the sinners and tax collectors and they're going absolutely berserk inside because what if the rule's being broken? What if just being there is somehow breaking a rule? And it was. They thought that they could get contaminated just by being close to other people that weren't like them. And so they were worried that if they even get caught close to Jesus, then somehow they'll catch the sin that Jesus has obviously caught because he's eating with these tax collectors and sinners. So I love the way the Bible says these little things. So the Pharisees, they asked the disciples. They wouldn't even go in to be with Jesus. They stayed outside and they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're freaking out because of the rules. But, but listen, and Helen read it beautifully. Listen to the disdain, the condemnation, the judgment of these religious people. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, ugh, spit, they can hardly get the words out. Why does he, why does he eat with those people? Why does he go near ugh, those ugh, people? Religious people become judgmental and critical. Because if you're obsessed with having to keep certain standards, you cannot help but measure others by those same standards. And your sense of well-being is determined by how much you can convince yourself that you're keeping the right standards. And one of the ways we convince ourselves that we're doing well is to look down on others that we perceive aren't doing so well. You with me? We do that in all kinds of contexts. So these religious people are looking down on the tax collectors and sinners. They're consumed with this judgmental, critical attitude. These are not people loved, made in the image of God. These are not people whose heart God is for. These are not people the God of heaven longs to reach down and rescue and restore. These are the, the sinners, the, the, those that couldn't make the grade, those that can't even keep the rules, those that deserve to be where they are because they can't even do the things that is expected of them to get themselves right and approachable to God. They're the outsiders. No wonder religion is hated the world over, by the way. It stinks. It breeds judgment and arrogance and pride in bucket loads. The prayer of the Pharisees, I'm so glad I'm not like that tax collector sinner blokey over there praying. And of course, Jesus has come to turn the tables on the whole thing. And so religious people are often suspicious and hostile to the outsider. And it's forever been the same. Or to put it more bluntly, religious people have no room for grace. Or very little room for grace. And that gets us into this next story. When they're fighting about fasting. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, the fasting that the Pharisees were doing was in order to keep the standard, in order to keep themselves acceptable to God, in order to keep up appearances, in order for them to do enough fasting and all these other things, in order for them to be forgiven, if you like. And Jesus is saying, listen, it would be an absolute nonsense for his disciples to fast like they were fasting while he was present. Because his presence with them is the ultimate sign that he has already accepted them. Which makes that kind of fasting, trying to get God to accept you, utterly pointless. And so he pulls the rug right from underneath them. Jesus is not with them because they've earned it. He's made that clear. In the paralyzed man, he's made that clear in calling of Levi. Jesus is with them because of grace. So for the disciples to be fasting in order to try and persuade God to show up when God had already showed up would be utterly ridiculous, don't you see? I mean, these verses are so funny in a way. We miss it in the English. I mean, it's just hilarious. 
This idea that all the Pharisees are lined up fasting. Oh, if only, if, if only God would realize how much we're fasting and show up. And he's already there and they don't even realize. He's already in their midst and they can't even see it. If you're focused on what you need to do, then there's no room for grace. And these Pharisees couldn't utter the idea for a moment of stopping fasting. Because what if we stop fasting and in that stopping we somehow lose God's favor? What would happen then? Jesus says, don't be ridiculous. The blessing is already here. It's already been given. You can't possibly fast to encourage God to come because he's already arrived. And maybe our lives can be a bit like that. If I do this, 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 then God will show up. And he goes, hello, I'm already here. It's grace. Nothing to do with what we do. Let's race down to verse 24. You'll be pleased about that. The Pharisee said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And this in so many ways is the same story repeated. They picked some corn, which was perfectly legitimate, but Sabbath rules was like the normal rules on speed. You know, you had the normal rules for six days and they cranked up the rules because it was a special day and we're all supposed to be really happy. Some of you know what I'm talking about from your own experience. At the heart of the Sabbath was to live one day as if all the work was done, even though it wasn't. It was to remind us that the real work is not what we do, but what he does. The real work is not what we are doing, but what he has already completed. That's why we talk about entering rest. The Sabbath was a question of trust. I am trusting that ultimately it's God's work, it's God's provision that changes my life, not my work and me trying to provide or to save or rescue myself. So we can stop and rest and enjoy and remember and be restored by the goodness of God because at the end of the day it's his work after all. Through the wilderness, they had manna given to them on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Then for their Sabbath, what happened? What happened on the Friday for the Sabbath? They got double. They got two. Who's, who's doing the work? Who's providing the meal? What pattern is being established? And some Muppets still went out on the Sabbath to collect the manna, didn't they? And it wasn't there. Because it's a matter of trust. And so what Jesus is highlighting here is that the Sabbath, this day ultimately to celebrate that it's God's work and not ours, is totally abused when it becomes a matter of doing more rules and achieving more work, as if you are somehow gaining acceptance by yourself. It is idolatry on the Sabbath of all days to act like what you do gets yourself right with God, to obsess on the Sabbath about keeping petty rules to earn God's favor is to completely miss the whole point. Somebody's car alarm? It's done. That's good. It's the ancient equivalent going on here of taking the swing out of the budgie cage to stop it swinging on a Sabbath. And, and, and Christians have done that in the name of Jesus. Because, I mean, I mean who, who would think that this God who brings freedom and life would want a budgie to enjoy itself on the Sabbath? We should shoot these birds in here, for goodness sake, flying around on the Sabbath. Don't they know what day it is? But the whole of creation cries out, for heaven's sake, someone celebrate and have some joy because this is the free gift of God. And so Jesus says, look, don't be so absurd. Sabbath is for man to go yes to the goodness of God. And you've turned it into a, oh, how wrong have you got it? How wrong 
has it become. And it just gets worse. Slip into the next chapter with me. The religious spirit that's behind these religious people has been growing in fervor through the whole chapter. And it reaches its ugly, shocking conclusions at the beginning of the next chapter. The next story, firstly, leads us to remember that religious people lose perspective. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, this is verse 1 of chapter 3, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them, still there, go home for goodness sakes. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So there's a man with a withered hand, and all of heaven is crying out towards the man with a withered hand. Because do you know why? Because men weren't meant to have withered hands. Just like a parent cries out to the brokenness in a child, all of heaven cries out to this man with a withered hand who probably cannot work, cannot look after his family. Everything about his dignity and his life has been ripped from him. It was not how it was meant to be. So the whole theme of heaven is to love and grace and healing and renewal for the man with the withered hand. And the religious leaders are going, oh, let's see what will happen now. They cannot be glad They cannot think about this man's need. They cannot reach out with a heart of compassion. Because when you become religious, you completely lose perspective about what matters. Because you're so focused on whether you're keeping the rules and making sure everybody else keeps the rules, you totally lose the plot. And they're losing the plot here. They've lost the plot. The kingdom of God is about compassion. Let's have a cheer. And healing and restoration. What's the kingdom of God breaking into this man's life going to look like? Might it look like he gets healed? Yes! And they couldn't care less. That's why religions have caused so many wars. Because there's a total loss of perspective. Because when you get obsessed that it's about you, what you need to do and whether you've done it, you become self-obsessed. And that leads to intolerance. Let's push this one step further. Jesus then asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? Jesus knew the answer, by the way, to that question. But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. Jesus is angry. Sometimes it's okay to be angry with what's going on in the world. Jesus was angry and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was gloriously, completely, wonderfully healed. A big cheer from the people of God. But look at this, verse 6. Isn't this utterly, utterly mind-blowing? Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot how they might kill him. We are one chapter into the story and the religious people are so mad. You know, these are the ones that go to the synagogue, who pay the tithe, who are on the board of local charities, these kinds of people. But they are so mad by Jesus that they are already to kill him. What's going on? They want to join up with the Herodians. And the Herodians were kind of an extreme group of their number that had particularly aligned themselves with the Romans. And everybody hated the Romans. So basically what Mark's reminding us is they hated Jesus, what, for healing this man and for raising this paralytic and for calling and loving sinners. and They hated Jesus even more than the common national hatred for the Romans. Mark couldn't have put it any stronger. And now they're ready to kill. Religious people become extreme. Become extreme. Where does religious extremism come from? It comes from not knowing that the forgiveness of God is freely available to anyone who wants it. Let me say that again. 
Where does religious extremism come from? It comes from not knowing that the forgiveness of God is freely, freely, freely available to anyone who wants it. Religious attitudes might seem so respectable, but religion killed Jesus. That's why he ended up on the cross. Mark, above all, is putting the shadow of the cross right over the whole story. He says it's there from the beginning. The other Gospels do it in different ways, like Matthew with the gift to the baby Jesus being myrrh to anoint him for burial. In different ways, they remind us the cross towers over the whole story, and it was religious people ultimately that put him there. Religion killed Jesus. Religion kills Jesus still. Religion seeks to stamp Jesus out wherever it is found, even in the church, because it is a completely different way to the way of good news that he came to bring. And there are two little teaching moments back in chapter 2 that I'm going to draw out as we come into land. The first is in verse 17 of chapter 2, so just turn back. You know, Jesus uses all these things as teaching moments and, and as uh, two, two little sets of verses that we skipped over. And we're just going to zoom in on them as we bring all this to uh, a conclusion this morning. Uh, verse 17, back in chapter 2. On hearing this, this was about Levi and the, the, the talking about tax collectors and all that stuff. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, at first, that seems a bit weird. Because what it seems to me to be saying, or what it seemed to me to be saying, Jesus says to the religious people, don't worry about you guys, you righteous ones. I've come for the sick ones. So leave me to deal with the sick ones while you just be busy with being righteous. But that's not what's being said at all. And look at it in the context of the whole chapter. Are the Pharisees being presented as righteous? No, they're about to kill Jesus only a few verses later. Jesus is not in any way saying that the Pharisees are righteous. Not at all. So what is Jesus saying? As ever, it's more subtle and more clever. Stick with it with me. It's not sick people who need a doctor, is it, actually? It's sick people who know they are sick who need a doctor. You with me? So you can be sick and not know that you're sick. And if you don't know that you're sick, you couldn't care less about having a doctor. You don't need a doctor. But those who, and Jesus just kind of leaves this brilliantly hanging in the air. If you are sick but do not know it, then you'll have no concern for a doctor. Wink, wink. Think about it, Pharisees. Think about what's going on here. Think about what you're claiming for yourselves. And this is the whole point. You can drill everything that I'm saying this morning down to this. Religious people forget they need a savior. They need a savior. Just like everyone needs a saviour. Look how saved I am. I'm keeping all the rules. Look how saved I am by the clothes I'm wearing to church compared to... (coughs) Look how saved I am because I'm in church and... (coughs) Blank seat, come on. Look how saved I am because, 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 and you forget, we forget that we need a saviour. Ironic, isn't it? You can keep all the rules... And still plot to kill the Son of God. Jesus rescues us freely. And it's a message so different, so counter-cultural to the religious tradition of his day, that Jesus says it's utterly incompatible with the Pharisaical way of life. Religious people need a totally new 
paradigm. Jesus says, I can't patch up what you're doing. I can't somehow make it seem right and respectable. I can't somehow say, well, if you only do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, then somehow your way of approaching faith and life will work. He says, no, 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 absolutely not. You need a totally different way, a totally different paradigm. I can't patch this up any more than I could patch up an old garment or pour new wineskins into an old wineskin container. It just cannot be done. You need a complete change. And you know, there were some brilliant examples, weren't there, of religious people going on a complete change. Nicodemus, totally scared, witless, going by night. Jesus says, you must be born again. Then Joseph of Arimathea going with Nicodemus late at night to collect the body of Jesus because they could see. They could see what so many of those religious people could not see, that there was something going on that brought a totally different revelation of who God is and what he has come to do. So where does it leave us? Question number one. This is it. This is the biggest question for today. The biggest question for the whole of your life. What do you believe about God's forgiveness of you? What do you believe about God's forgiveness of you? You see, we are all that paralyzed man. Paralyzed in life by our sin. And what all the religions in the whole world couldn't do. And can't do. And what all the efforts of your heart and mind can't do, Jesus did in four words. Your sins are forgiven. And with that, we can roll up our mat and go home. Embrace it. Live it. Enjoy it. Go on our way dancing to the tune of forgiveness. Because it's ours. And we've done nothing to earn it. And could never deserve it. But it's freely given. That's why they call this way Good news. Amen? Good news? Got to embrace it and live it and love it. And every notion in our lives, when somehow I think I'm achieving something by my effort and by my works, I have to kill that in Jesus' name. Because it's that spirit that leads all the way to the extremism that put Jesus on the cross. And we might say, I'd never do that. But it begins with little decisions. When we allow and embrace into our lives this utterly false idolatry that somehow I can earn something when I can't. And do you know what that does? When you chill about it, when you relax about it, when you become the person that God has made you to be, you start doing all kinds of good stuff because there's a new spirit in you and you go on your way living a new kind of life. Let's be quiet for a moment.